Our New Testament lesson this morning is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'll read the whole chapter, including the last verse, and uh, yet our focus will be on verses 6 through 15 again. This is the word of God. Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking disorderly and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not undisciplined when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk disorderly, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, these instructions from your apostle. We thank you that Paul was confident that by your grace, the Thessalonians would embrace this word and comply with it. And we thank you that the same spirit is at work among us now. And we ask you that you would help us to understand, to believe, and so to live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 6 through 15, Paul turns again to a subject he had addressed in earlier teaching, the place of productive labor in the Christian community. This subject had been addressed when the congregation was first gathered, as Paul reminds them in this text. In verse 10, even when we were with you, we would give you this command. 
He brought the matter up in a positive form in the first letter in chapter 4. He told them, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. In this second letter, however, Paul comes with a rebuke, as apparently not all had complied with his God-pleasing instructions. Now recall our method in in treating this passage. We're considering here the matter formally. That is to say, not concerning the call to labor in particular, but with respect to the discipline, the way discipline was applied to those who were disobedient to Paul's instructions, how that was in fact to be addressed by the whole community. Paul directs the church as to how, with regard to this problem, both the individual and the community must work together to evidence the reality of God's saving grace in their midst. In these instructions, we see how individuals are called to live a disciplined life, and the community must work together to evidence the reality of that discipline in a community context through the employment of tough love. So he writes in verse 6, We command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking disorderly. This is stern discipline. Keep away from any such brother. Paul explains that the behavior provoking this distance is, quote, not in accord with the traditions that you have from us. That is, it is a deliberate disobedience to the revealed will of the Lord of the Church. And as we noted last week, the term translated in the ESV as idleness is more properly translated disorderly. As the basic meaning of the term, it means out of order, undisciplined, in a military sense, breaking ranks. We don't explicitly learn of the specific sin until verse 11. Now, so grave is this matter that Paul will not only require a certain suspension of fellowship, but also an exclusion from the benevolent care of the church for those who live this way. Verse 10, when we were with you, we told you, if anyone will not work, let him not eat. And Paul concludes the instructions with these words, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in well-doing. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now these are hard words. Believers are called to a certain separation from those with whom they generally should enjoy the closest bonds of unity. As we said, When Paul says there to keep away, this is not to be understood as shunning a complete disassociation which has no place in the Christian community. Nor is this yet excommunication, what we see in Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be as unto you a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Rather, we are still here to treat the offender as a brother or sister. The separation in view is from anything that would reinforce, today we would say enable, a brother or sister in their failure to live up to the standards of Christ. Christians are given a rule for a way of life. It is a lifestyle in our language, but not one that is merely private, personal, self-constructed. On the contrary, believers share in it together as it has been given to them by the Lord. Here we see both the personal and corporate character of the calling to the Christian way of life. Both are essential to the life of God's people in this interim period until our Lord returns. And thus the uh, proposition we had taken from this text is as follows. The Christian life is a life of discipline, grounded in the self-discipline of the believer in that way of life, and encouraged and enforced by the fellowship of the disciplined. The Christian life is a life of discipline, grounded in the self-discipline of the believer in that way of life, and encouraged and enforced by the fellowship of the disciplined. Today we take up part two of our study, that Christian self-discipline is encouraged and enforced by the fellowship of the disciplined. But first I want to review briefly the things we noted in part one, that the Christian's way of life is a way of self-discipline. First, the Christian way of life. It's a way of discipleship, recall. And the way of discipleship preeminently is the way of discipline. That is, of learning and training. To have one who shows you the way and to willingly follow that way. This was brought before the Thessalonians both in precept and example. Paul gave them words and he showed them what, he looked, what it looked like. You see Paul refer to this as a regular pattern of his teaching in Philippians 3 at verse 16. Only let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So we have a standard And we have those who are living by that standard. And living by that standard reinforces the standard in the community. The way of Christian life, of course, is also a way of dying. Dying to remaining the remaining effects of our sinful disposition. Thus, the believer must work for self-control. Conquest over self for the sake of being controlled by the word of the Lord. We urged that this is a work of grace, not a work of nature. Though nature is capable of a form of it, properly it is the fruit of the Spirit, as in Galatians 5.22 and following. The will is brought together, brought under the direction of a beloved Lord, 
exercised in compassion with gentleness, humility, and gratitude to God. The characteristics of this self-control? Well, Peter spoke spoke of it beautifully. Though God himself has given the gift, it is a gift that nonetheless we are to be diligent to pursue. You remember how how Peter put it in his second epistle in chapter 1 at verse 3. He said his divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness. But that being the case, nonetheless, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with a variety of virtues, but preeminently with self-control. Do you see that? Further, the grace of self-control is purpose-driven, as in the case of the athlete who's working for the prize, and he keeps his eyes on the prize. And Paul notes in particular that our prize is infinitely greater, and so we ought to be a people profoundly purpose-driven. And this self-control is a mark of spiritual maturity, and thus it's a qualification for leadership in fellowship, discipline. And over and again, this is spoken of particularly as a requirement for the eldership. Thus, our review of what we looked at last week. Now we proceed to fellowship discipline. And note that those who are Excuse me, and note that those who are self-disciplined then are to be a help in disciplining one another. According to our Lord, correction must begin, generally not with the community, but with the individual, that is, brothers and sisters separately, coming together. So Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against him, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The individual is the first expression of this community care. So too from Luke 17, 3. Jesus said, pay attention to yourselves. There's a self-discipline. But if your brother sins, you rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That's the first line of community care. We are responsible for one another. And the closer we are in a relationship, the greater that responsibility lies upon us. We are responsible for one another, and God will require of us concerning our brothers and sisters. Sin in our lives leads us to want to uh, repudiate this responsibility. We're very tempted to take upon our lips the terrible words of Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? Those who know the redemption from sin have a calling, in fact, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. This must be, of course, consistency with the primacy of the calling to self-discipline. We're not to act in a prying way. This is not the work of a busybody. Rather, the calling of the disciplined 
is to respond to the problems when they come to our attention personally or break out into public awareness. Here we see fellowship discipline, encouraging and reinforcing the calling of the individual. The disciplined help to discipline. They help by example. They help through encouragement and by the creation of a community context for discipline. And just as self-discipline is a fruit of the spirit in the individual, so too fellowship discipline is the fruit of the spirit's gracious work in a congregation. Now the fellowship of those who are self-disciplined bears fruit in community standards publicly acknowledged and publicly enforced. This is the crucial foundation. Community standards publicly acknowledged and publicly enforced. Publicly acknowledged, that is the community, creates the context within which fellowship discipline can take place. The standards are publicly acknowledged by the people of God. It's the rule of Christ through his word that the community holds up and holds to. And the disorderly, therefore, are publicly acknowledged. We are to take note, as Paul said, identify, not to ignore, not to sweep under the carpet. Recall, conformity to the scripture standard is not, or excuse me, recall that conformity to the scripture standards that is only because of the pressure of community is no real virtue at all. Yet those who neglect their calling by their public practices are to feel the disapproval of the community. Wholesome community pressure can bring me back to my heart's deepest desire, faithfulness to Jesus. A standard publicly acknowledged and publicly enforced. As we said, we're to take note of those who violate it in order to put them to shame. Now, I think Paul here, when he says take note of, is shorthand for our Lord's words, tell it to the church. In the PCA, this means having fulfilled the duties of private admonition without any wholesome resolution, one brings the matter to the attention of the elders through a regular process. The erring one, having been found guilty of some sin, then suffers the censure of the church. This is the calling of the fellowship to join in in the enforcement of that judgment. The calling of the fellowship is to heed the judgment of the elders and thus to keep away from such a one, have nothing to do with him. Note that the commands of our text are addressed to the whole congregation. Paul teaches that deliberate and unrepentant personal failure should lead to a practical withdrawal of support for that way of life. The community is to withhold anything that would reinforce or aid a brother in failing to live up to the standards of Christ. 
This is not a punishment. It is a form of doing good for the one who has wandered. Enforcing what he has already acknowledged by his profession to be for his own interest. For it is the Lord's calling. Thus, the discipline is redemptive and restorative at its heart, not punitive. We are to admonish as a brother, full of hope for repentance, and to act with gentleness, without self-righteousness. As Paul says in Galatians 6.1, restore him with a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. The goal? To put him to shame. Shame, that painful feeling caused by the consciousness of my failure or the exposure before others of unworthy or indecent conduct. Those who walk disorderly by their public practice are to feel the disapproval of the community that they may be ashamed. Recall that this letter would have been read publicly and the guilty would have been plainly apparent. Imagine how the disorderly would have felt in this circumstance. And yet shame is what the real Christian comes to feel when he's found in behavior unworthy of his Lord. Last week we reminded ourselves of the colloquial phrase, you should be ashamed of yourself. And we recall that here we see shame is a moral obligation. In fact, in the scripture, to be shameless is to be especially abandoned to wickedness. The unjust knows no shame, we read in Zephaniah 3.5. Jeremiah takes the matter further In chapter 3, at verse 3, you have the forehead of a whore, for you refuse to be ashamed. The outcome for the unashamed is the just judgment of God. We read in Jeremiah 6, 15, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall And at that time I will punish them and they will be overthrown. Proper shame is good. It motivates reformation and restoration. Now there is a movement today to lay the blame for an unhealthy sense of self upon shame. In this view, to be made ashamed is to have a loss of self-respect, of self-esteem, before another in such a way that is crippling, and thus shame is simply taken to be a bad thing. But this view is mistaken. It only considers part of the matter. Shame is destructive when I am humiliated in the estimation of others for no other reason then I'm not in conformity to the group or have failed by some merely human standard. 
That's the part the modern view gets right. It is unhealthy when I am counted as worthless and defined merely by the standards of the group and then moved to conformity against my own desires. This is demeaning and destructive with respect to real character. This undermines self-control because it only extends so far as the reach of the group. But healthy shame is when another or the group holds up to me a mirror that reflects the truth of God and exposes my lack of conformity to his standards. In this case, a professed believer finds that these are not only God's standards, but his own and the fellowship's standards that he is privileged to be a part of and maintain. What is enforced by the community is the command of the Lord. Refusal is thus to obey and be rebellious, disobey and be rebellious against God himself. God is the one, finally, who shames The prophet Hosea speaks for God when he says this in chapter 4 at verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I shall also reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. The more they are multiplied, the more they sinned against me, and I will change their glory into shame. And that shame comes through the preaching of God's word. Here the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 43 at verse 10. Describe to the house of Israel the truth of God that they may be ashamed for their iniquities. And if they are ashamed, make known to them the temple and its laws that they may observe them. That's to be the outcome. Or again in Ezekiel 16 at verse 60. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. This ministry includes a note of condemnation, it is true. But it never rests there. It points beyond condemnation. Proper shame, healthy shame is grounded not in the testimony. Look what you have done, how worthy of condemnation you are. And that's it. But rather, proper shame lies in this. Look what you have done, how, un- how worthy of condemnation. But how unworthy this is of what you really are as a follower of Christ. It calls the transgressor back to a true sense of who he is in Christ. This is a self-consciousness of sin, not a mere lack of conformity. And this is a blessing. I see and feel that I'm inconsistent with my own best desires and hopes. And this stirs me to reformation and renewal. This dissatisfaction with self may actually be the means of begetting character and self-control. 
Shame prepares the heart for hatred of sin. When a person feeling this pain sees not the community and its standards alone, but sees his own sin and the cause lying within his own heart. That stirs up a proper desire to avoid that pain in the future by avoiding those acts that justly occasion the pain. Thus, this shaming is a way to express brotherly love. That I am loved and treated as a brother doesn't eliminate shame, but rather it makes healing possible when I turn from my shameful ways. Such a turning is the promise of God through the good news of his anointed one. We read in Isaiah 61, 7, Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion, and everlasting joy shall be theirs. Thus, the sign by which brotherly love is proved is not flattery, not cowardly indulgence, but rather with wholesome admonition. This is the powerful sign of God at work in a community. Here I want to paraphrase the great Scottish preacher James Ferguson from the 17th century. He put the matter this way. I'm paraphrasing because it's almost unintelligible with his uh, uh, Scottish um, sense of the relationship between words in the 16th century. Nothing hardens a sinner more in his wickedness than this. Though wicked, he loses nothing of his esteem among good people. You get that point? Nothing hardens a person in their wickedness. When then, when they discover that good people discovering their weakness It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't change at all their opinion of him. On the contrary, he said, there is nothing which is powerful by the Lord's blessing as a more effectual means to make the sinner ashamed of his sin and because of shame to turn from it than when he sees himself disapproved by good people. That's powerful for his restoration. There are great issues at stake here. We shame now so that there'll be no shame on the day of Christ. And John writes to his beloved in chapter 2, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Well, Christian life is a life of discipline grounded in self-discipline of the believer and encouraged and enforced by the fellowship of the disciplined. Now, if there are any here today who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, Your desire surely is to be free from shame. And certainly you don't find a community 
with a calling to impose shame attractive. Perhaps you're thinking, the minister's not selling his cause very well with this sermon. And yet here is the way of life, I proclaim, the way of eternal life. You are shameful in your rebellion against God. And as you are, you will certainly be ashamed before Jesus on the last day. But now, in this day of redemption, if you come to feel godly shame, confessing your sin before Christ and being preserved through his means, such shame will be healing, healing from all shame and forever. For those who do profess faith, let us see the importance of the community of the disciplined and realize that that community of the disciplined begins in your own household and the standards that are upheld there. And notice that the loss of those standards, whether through the destructive influences of television or radio or music or whatever, the internet, the loss of those standards is catastrophic. The value of the discipline of the community is crucial to your household. It is a grace, it is the mercy of God at work to help you battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And thus we see why Christians must fight against the public legitimatization of various forms of immorality. To uphold standards that produce shame that are critical to the good of one entangled in sin. With respect to the bondage of sin, Armin Nikolai III, a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, concluded this. Clinical experience has demonstrated that motivation to change plus conscious feelings of guilt significantly increase the prospect of therapeutic success. The motives we ought to have for this important calling. Well, for the members of New Hope, of course, you have already promised to pursue it. You were asked when you joined, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of this church and promise to study its purity and peace? Now, of course, that didn't mean to take a course in purity and peace. That's the old sense of study. It meant to pay attention carefully to in order to live by. Why was such a promise required of you? Because it's essential for the glory of Christ and the good of this congregation that we submit to the government and discipline of the church and attend to carefully its purity and peace. This counters the enticement to sin that's found when sin is tolerated. Do you remember the apostle in 1 Corinthians 5 at verse 6? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven. Paul's point is a a, a little of that can lead to fermentation that covers the whole and destroys it. By analogy, when public 
when publicly known sin in the church is not subjected to church discipline, it will silently spread its destructive consequences throughout the whole fellowship. Alexander Pope saw this powerfully, and he helped us to see it in a sobering verse. Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with their face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. When discipline takes place, it has a deterrent effect. 1 Timothy 5.20, as for those who profess persistent sin, rebuke them in the presence of all that the rest may stand in fear. And it keeps us from being complicit in another's sin, as John tells his readers in 2 John 10 and 11. Today there is too little shame in the community of faith because we suppose brotherly love means acceptance without standards, without responsibility, and thus sin comes to abound in the people of God. But we need to recall here that the only way to fruitfulness and usefulness in the community is the way of self-control. 2 Peter 1, 3 to 10. This is the way to know the assurance that God is at work in our midst, as Peter declares in that passage. The directions for this fellowship discipline are just the same ones that we looked at last week. We need to pray for this, not only for ourselves, but for our whole congregation, for our presbytery, for our denomination. It means that we work together, that the word of God would dwell richly among us, that we might be an encouragement to one another to embrace it and to live by it, to live according to the traditions that we've received from the apostles. Make sure that what is enforced in this community is in fact the command of the Lord and not simply our own cultural traditions or predilections. All discipline in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We dare not take his name in vain by making according to our will. But in the name of Christ, we do enforce the standards that he has set. Then we glorify him and employ the means that is the best hope for reclaiming brothers and sisters and restoring them when they wander. And so be ready to admonish and encourage one another with good arguments from the word, overcome, helping another overcome passions with what is right to feel and to do. The goal is to return someone to self-discipline, to encourage personal character. If a person will not hear, take it to the elders and be willing to enforce the judgment of the elders if formal discipline is necessary. And I call you to reflect upon this now. Do not delay until the time when such convictions are needed. Consider the golden rule. Do unto others. Establish it in your own heart and mind that you do want others to help you live a disciplined way of life. 
And so be ready to do the same for another. Will you be willing in that day? Will you be well persuaded that this is a test of your love for a brother? There are great issues at stake. James reminds the Christian community, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What an extraordinary, blessed calling we have to have such a role with a brother or sister in their life. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Paul's powerful instructions to the Thessalonians. And we thank you that you made this word fruitful in their lives. Make it fruitful in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.